HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. I'm your other half, Greg Bresnitz. We are heading down to Mexico City. We are very excited to be there. We're talking to legendary chef Gabriela Camara. She owns Contramar. She owns Cala. And we are going to be talking about her stunner of a dish, the tuna tostada. You've had it. I've had it. I've had it many times. I've had it not only for the start of the meal, but for dessert. I think everyone who goes there eats it and then tells everyone about it and goes, I don't care. It's like saying, play Let It Be. And then they're like, eh. And then you're like... Oh, no way, that's a great song. It's a great dish. And a little bit of a spoiler alert. A little bit? A little bit. That dish did not exist before she made it. And then it changed the face of Mexican cuisine. She invented it? She invented it. But the story behind how she invented it and where it came from will be on later in the episode. Oh, she invented the combination. Correct. Okay. Then our good friend, Jameson Fink. Shout out, Jameson. Buddy and wine writer, pours rosé all over this episode for another installment of Snacky Tunes 5s. And then we are going deep into the archive for one of our, I mean, I like to call them a summer band, but they're good in any season, but they're one of our favorite summer bands. Midnight Magic, so much fun. Brooklyn, through and through. Disco, through and through. What a blast. Here we go. Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Thank you. 
Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. We are sitting in beautiful Medco City with Gabriela Camara in her brand new event space, which is absolutely stunning. Yes. We had a wonderful lunch, epic lunch here yesterday with Danny Bowen, Chad from Totine, Angela, who was a, amazing with a broken arm or whatever that amazing. is. Amazing. Amazing. She's amazing. And David Tannis. And David Tannis, too, who was just around. Who was just, just, around. just around. Just around. Which seems, seems to be the vibe for Mexico City, that people are just around. It's become such a place to be, especially for, you know, for people from New York, specifically, but from everywhere in the world. It's always been a city that attracts many expats, but I really think that New Yorkers find something that they sort of miss from New York. And, and Mexico City is, is a great place to be. I have to agree. As a 12-plus year New Yorker, I come down here and it feels like the pages from Please Kill Me, mm-hmm. where you can mm-hmm. just live and be creative. We've been to so many people's houses who are just recording studios, but they don't have four people sleeping there, and everything is reasonably priced, and you can have a good cost of living, and it's really wild and kind of dangerous, but everything is really cool. And it just I totally agree with you. I was out yesterday after the lunch and thinking... Oh, this is what New York... Oh, this is why people lament the loss of New York. Yeah, there's like this edge, which me, having lived in Mexico City for so long, I, I, you know, I've, I've always been very involved with people from, from outside. And Mexico City has always drawn people from everywhere. I mean, it's a, it's a huge cosmopolite, cosmopolite, do you say? Cosmopolitan? Cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan city, yes. <laughs> and anyways, and it's, a, you know, it's always attracted many people. But... Um, the city has gone through periods of more, say, um, safety and stability in terms of how you could go around and drive around and walk around. Now it's, it's, it's going again through a, I think it's, it's, a rough period is coming. So I'm sorry because, because it, it's, it's sort of in the midst of everybody wanting to come. So, anyways, that's... Anyway, yeah. people will always find a way. Yes. Every, I mean, things with a little bit of danger are a lot more fun. Yes, and it, and it is great to have all these people just wanting to come here. It's wonderful. And I really do think that if, if especially, you know, particularly in the cooking scene, if people keep on coming to Mexico City from different parts of the world and making, finding places to make, you know, incredible food from wherever they're from, Mexico City will be a very, very important place for food in the world not only for mexican food but for you know for food in the world speaking of people who wanted to come your mom is italian yes so how did she end up meeting your dad they were both studying in the in the states okay and they they met while they were both doing their phd's in at harvard and then they went to live in chihuahua north of mexico just because my father was working in an education program there in an education yeah in a, in a really he had been living there for a couple of years. And then uh, I was born there, then my brother, and then we came to Mexico City. But yes, um, my mother was one of those foreigners who fell in love with Mexico, not only with the Mexican, but with Mexico. 
What was the uh, what was the scene in the kitchen at that time? Was there at a weird like Italian Mexican fusion going on? Did mom cook? Did dad cook? They both cooked, but my father had lived abroad for many years, mm. and my father is not attached to he's attached to good food, but he wasn't like I need to have my tortillas and my hot sauce for sure. So they basically we grew up eating Italian food until we came to Mexico City. I mean, we always had things from wherever we were. In Chihuahua, I remember, um, and in, in Mexico, you always have, uh, you, you know, you have the advantage of having ladies that cook and that live in the house or come to the house and, 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 and work in a house. And my mother always, you know, worked and my parents were both academics. So we always had, you know, somebody who would help around the house. And I remember the lady in Chihuahua making, um, Alma, she was our sort of babysitter slash helper, um, she would make, I remember making uh, corn, uh, flour tortillas with her because in Chihuahua in the north, that's what you would have. But then we went to, we came to Mexico City and then moved, very soon moved to Tepoztlan, which was more of a weekend place for people in Mexico City that had the possibility of having a weekend home. So we decided to move to our weekend home because it was, um, it was, it was closer to the UNAM where my mom was going to work, where was, my mom had started working. It was a national university, which is in the south of the city, and sort of on the way to Tepoztlan, this town in Morelos. And anyways, and there the food is very traditional, very traditional Mexican. People are very proud of their um, Aztec, uh, you know, pre-Hispanic background. And it's also a very, it was also a very important town during the revolution in the 1920s. So they're all zapatistas and they're very, very proud of their culture. So, you know, black beans, corn, everything corn, uh, corn fields, everything revolved around the corn season. Um, and yeah, and then, and then I was, I was, Partly to fit in, but partly because I've always loved food, and partly because my parents always have accepted whatever um, they were happy to eat that food as well. And we, when we cook, still we cook Italian mostly. Mm. When what, we cook together, what's like the family signature dish <sighs> or dishes? Fresh, never... fresh made pasta, an amazing pesto, a great carbonara, um, rabbit. Mm, we love we love you know the rabbit uh, like a cacciatore or a ragu and then pasta capelli d'angelo freshly made capelli d'angelo with that mm. Mm. so are you opening an Italian restaurant no <laughs> no I did once and then it ended up being more of a pizzeria and a bar because it was so it, it was great it was a great place but I think it was early in Mexico it was also it was also you know you learn I mean, we always learn through um, doing whatever uh you know maybe i in retrospect is very different how you think of what you did right so i think now that that place was sort of ahead of its time for mexico city because nobody was into actually what, high-end what year? italian it was in nine in 2002 three and it was sort of modern but not and then we never had a good executive chef, so it was not, it wasn't that well executed. So it was it was a mix a mix of many things, and um, and I was busy running other restaurants. It was a time when I had like seven restaurants because I had these Spanish tapas places which were very successful, and I had Contramar and Entremar, and I had this um, this. Uh, this hamburger joint, which I still have. It's very, it, that's very successful still. But anyways, so it turned more into, we had a great 
oven and so we made incredible pizzas and then it just turned more into a neighborhood bar because there wasn't that and people mm. needed that it was really cool and comfortable and they knew who you were and they would you know they it was sort of low-key and not not a night place but it sort of moved more into night instead of day anyways that was but but yes night no i'm not i don't think i'm gonna make an italian place not yet not yet, not yet. i don't know i was my dream was to I, I was studying history. I wanted to be a curator of contemporary art. I always fa- saw myself as... Art history here in Mexico City, right? Yes. I, I studied just history because okay. it was a better program. And mm. in Mexico, you go, you dive into a like more the European way of studying one subject throughout university, not college in which you can major and minor and have courses of different areas. Um, so I, 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 I always envisioned myself as being an academic. And then I thought I would retire or end up in Tuscany somewhere around Chianti and have a bed and breakfast. I mean, And I'm so happy I opened a restaurant in my 20s instead of waiting for my 60s or 70s because I don't know if I'm going to have the energy. I mean, where did your love of seafood come from? Because we would always go to the, to the beach right. on vacation. Over Christmas vacation... My grandparents, my Italian grandparents, who at the end of their life had retired and were living on 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 the Cape in Massachusetts. Uh, they lived in, in South Wellfleet the, the last 25 years of their lives. And they would always, well, even before that, they would always come to Mexico City for winter and we would go to the beach for, you know, a long winter vacation. Winter, not winter, on the beach. And they love the ocean. My grandfather loved to go fishing. My father also. So we would always go fishing and then cook what was, you know, what we had caught. And it was always served with black beans and fresh made tortillas and maybe a red rice or something simple. And either it was, you know, you deep fry a part of the fish, you make ceviche with the other part, you make the pescado a la talla with the other, you know, with the like nicer ones. And 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 I learned to appreciate, or I had a really, I've always loved food, always. And, and everybody in my family has, always. And then food has been very important. And everything revolves around food. And meals, you know, are about enjoying them and then about planning the next one. And it's just the whole, the, you know, life does revolve around the table, I think, in many, in many, in many It could, you could say that about my family on both sides. Anyways, and so the when we when we would go to the beach, I just you know I, I I had had that for so many years. And then when I was in university, with with you know it just expanded to who you hang out with at the beach. You first are with your family, and then you're with friends. And we would always with with these friends, you know, this group of friends, we would always say, "What a shame that you can't eat this in Mexico City." And we we always thought, oh, we should open something here so that we can come to Siwatanejo and just live here year round. It's such a it's it's always painful to leave a place when you know when you go back to the city and 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 one always wants to like perpetuate vacation when you're at it. So you think of things that you could do to do that. And we decided that instead of opening a restaurant or a hotel and a restaurant on the beach we would open a restaurant in the city so that then we could open a hotel on the beach and eventually live there. Before, yes. uh, just to kind of set the scene because I, yes. I think it's really interesting. What was the current state of seafood? I was, was going to go there. Yeah. I was going to go there. And this is so, 1997, 98. Ni yes. 
So when we when we when we were thinking about that, it was like we started thinking about that because it was very interesting. That first of all, there was no like fresh seafood, really high quality seafood place. You could either eat seafood in stands at the market, or you could eat seafood in fancy restaurants. And it was never that you know it was in the '90s. In the '90s, nobody was really in high end dining. People were more into sophistication of technique and maybe exotic ingredients like, you know, the, the, the sardines from Spain, even if they were frozen, or you know, mussels from New Zealand, or foie gras from Canada, or or France, or you know, oysters from Canada. Uh, sorry, from from France, and it was. Yeah, I remember, you know, this guy bringing things from Britain, which is, you know, wonderful, but it makes no sense. And anyway, so I really, and, I, and this is maybe because, and I've always, and I do think about that. This is maybe because I'm half foreign in Mexico, even if I, I, I feel very comfortable here and I'm Mexican. But I always thought of how unappreciated Mexican things were. And like I always, that was always on my mind. And I thought, you know, this is the best. When you go to the beach and you have a taco with a fresh-made tortilla of fish that is just grilled, simply grilled, not even, it doesn't have to have a sophisticated sauce, with beans and a freshly made chile tomatillo or chile tomato, garlic, onion sauce. It is delicious. It was one of the best bites ever. So... I, I wanted to recreate that here. And this friend who was study, who was working in Italy was sick and tired of living there. And he said, let's do it. Let's just do it. One year we said, let's just do it. And we started looking for a space and we opened Contramar in 1998. And it was really, it was a really like totally crazy and off thing. Like, no, none of us had real experience in restaurants. One of the partners had a coffee place and had had a little restaurant, but he wasn't even working here. He just was sort of the business guy pushing us to do it and and he always said yeah you're gonna be great at this you're you you, you have no idea but this is gonna be like this, you're gonna be you're gonna be a really good um restaurant person and I, i i i found you know i found the scene in mexico city to be yet yeah, lacking something informal and high quality And was it met with skepticism that you were bringing fresh fish and fresh ingredients? Did people even get it, what you were doing in the beginning? No. I think they just appreciated the quality. And also, they appreciate... We, so, we, our menu was so unpretentious that we had... You know, we just had fish and shrimp and octopus because that's what we could get here at the market. And we go to the market every morning at four in the morning. And we found you know, the freshest fish that we could find. And we were a bunch of blonde kids in Mexico City, which is sort of ironic because there's this class thing and people working or hard workers usually are not blonde and um, European looking. And so it was, it was interesting because people got a kick out of that. And they, some of, I mean, it had many reactions and it was interesting as a sociological project But regardless of that, we did get really fresh fish because we also found the reason we decided to do this was that we found that most of the fish, Mexico is such a centralized country and, it, and Mexico City is so much the center of everything that fish 
comes to Mexico City and then is redistributed, which is a total irony. So would you be just waiting at the airport for the, the, and the planes the, to come in? And at La Viga, people, with cars, with trucks, people would bring... La Viga is a big fish market, and they would bring you know their trucks loaded with fish that they had fished the night before. How long did it take for you to find your trusted suppliers? And they understood, you know, Gabby gets first pick, Gabby gets to come, you it's, know. And you know, that comes with the power of acquisition. Like mm-hmm. when you're buying interesting quality, interesting quantities from them, then they start really paying attention to and you. And how long did that take? It wasn't, it didn't take that long. <laughs> and it didn't, fortunately. And then, and, and but then, so we, let's see, so around... And we and we changed, and then we we had many purveyors, and we still do. And now I and I keep it keeps on changing. I mean, it doesn't keep on changing. I have, you know, we we have come to work with incredible, incredibly reliable uh, teams of people, but we are still, for example, last year or this past year, we have found an extraordinary fisherman who does everything himself, and and is really into sustainable fishing and he's actually one of the only people who's who fishes sustainably like really doesn't take clams with a with a net uh like you know really dives for each one and has and and, and you can see in the quality in contramar it's really interesting because in 98 it was top quality but if you could go back in time and have that food now i think you would find it not bad because it was always well seasoned, but lame. Now you now we have like the most extraordinary clams that you could find in the country. Because there's a market for it. Because there's a market for it, and people trust us and want to sell to us, and people know that selling to us is a is a warranty of selling to other restaurants. And if we buy it, it's good quality. So it's like it's 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 a it's a very virtuous circle. It's a very you know they want to sell to us because we're an important market for them to have. And they so, and so many people like other chefs call me like, are you really buying from these guys? Because they're telling me that they're buying for that, that you're buying from them. And you know sometimes it's true and sometimes it isn't because they you know they they know it's a place in which I am obsessed with quality, with quality and sustainability of things of ingredients. So I don't I know it's I know it's it's a footprint to bring things from Baja California or from Campeche, but Mexico City is centralized. Like people are already flying in and driving in. And but but within that big within this big country, I've never wanted you know things from Alaska or things from Chile or from or salmon from Norway. It's always been the most local possible. We're gonna take a quick yes. musical break. Yes. We're gonna come back and talk about your expansion. Yes. The new restaurant, okay. staffing, okay. and all other things in your world. Okay. We're gonna play a quick song from the archive, and then we'll be right back here on Snacky Tunes.
You briefly touched on this, but after Contramar, mm -hmm. you, you now have 10 restaurants. You've opened 10 restaurants. Some have closed. Some have sustained. How soon after Contramar did you start expanding, and, and what was the process in that? It was really organic, unplanned. Still to this moment, it's unplanned. I, I am trying to now sort of organize my, um, my professional life in terms of having um, a more... Yeah, a more a more planned out version of what I would like to do in the future because it sort of happens and all these opportunities come up. And I was I was telling I was talking with these friends yesterday. Since I opened Contramar, every like every day or every week at least, I've had incredible opportunities of doing more things because I found that I was good at this. I found that I was like I thrive between people and food and. The staff and the like. I really, it's it's a it's a little ecosystem which I have really. I don't know. I think I was born to do this, but I didn't know it, of course, until I did it. So, anyways, right after we opened Contramar, these very good customers would come every weekend, begged or not begged, but really were insistent on the on the on the on the possibility of open of taking over a restaurant that they had in Polanco that had been different things, never worked, and they, they, they had the space, they had invested a ton of money, and it, was, they, it belonged to them, and they really wanted something that would work there. So a year after we opened Contramar, maybe a year and a half, we opened Entremar, we, 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 did, we said, okay, let's do this. And it was a stupid deal, but it, but it works, and it still works, and still very successful, because it was like, okay, we will put our concept into your place, we'll name it different so that it's not the same, same, and you have 50% of it just because you're the owners, and, and that's how it went. I mean, we would have never had another restaurant, so it was good to do that, but we had very poor notions of how to do business, I guess. And, in a, and, and But it's worked, it's worked. Entremar is very successful. It's in a town of city, which is in a, in a part of the town which is more sort of poshy or high-end, And it's in front of a park, and it's beautiful. And we have the same menu as in, in Contramar. We have a few different things, but it's always catered to a different public, and it's, it's, it's been good. And we've gone through ups and downs, and recently I've just put my foot down and said, okay, if we're going to have Entremar with this sort of same menu as Contramar, We're going to have the exact same things. We're going to have the exact same purveyors. They can't decide, because it was also like different administrations for a certain time, and you know for a certain period, but like uh, since... Four or five years ago, I've really put my foot down, and it's it's been so much better. Now yeah. it's it's we you, do you use exactly the same purveyors, we use exactly the same, follow the same recipes, have much more of an exchange between the cooks from here and there, the server from here and there, and it's sort of the same type of place. Um, and then, so that happened really soon and really unexpectedly, and it required no investment or no you know further planning except for staffing. And in Entremar, we still have the, our first employee from Contramar still works there. Wow. She, the cook, the first, the first person we hired at Contramar. Amazing. She's still thriving in the kitchen. Anyways, uh, so that was, that was that. And then other things just came about. When you're successful, people want to be close to you and want to like 
do things with you and think of things that they could or that you could solve for them. Or, you know, I have this space, this restaurant didn't work, should we do something? What do you think we should do? And then I have all these ideas, so things happen. Like, oh, let's make a tapas bar. There's no, you know, Spanish tapas were at the peak of their popularity in Barcelona and all these amazing creative chefs in, in northern Spain were doing really cool things and I thought it would be an easy interpretation to bring to Mexico and... There's so many there's so many Spaniards in Mexico and Spanish food is so important in Mexico. So we did these this really successful tapas place and then another one, it was time to open another one because the staff wants to do more and you get offered this other space, so we did two of those. What was the name of the restaurant? Capicua. And then and then I sold Capicua uh, was like five, six years into the operation. And because my partners wanted to expand and I didn't. And when I sold it to them, and it was great. It was a great, you know, it was a fine uh, division of what we wanted to do. And they, they really wanted to make up a, a, a chain and they, you know, they really wanted to franchise it. And I sold it to them and then it started, it started going downhill. Now it doesn't exist. They closed like a year after. It was, I was sorry to see because it was, a, it was a great thing. It was a really, really, really great concept. It was fun. People would eat, drink. You know, small bites. Very, very contemporary. Very much like something that would work now. Because I do think that one of the really good things that Contramar had was that it was very much like a, in its time or it offered something that people didn't know they want but was more and more accepted and people enjoyed, which is eating together and sharing plates and having small plates to try bits and pieces of different things. And, and and that's the tapas thing. And that came about, I don't know, with Asian... I, I mean, of course, Chinese food has always been that, but it isn't that it's huge in Mexico. But the, 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 the generalization of, or the massification of sushi, for example, mm. um, in which you, you know, have small things that you share with others. I think I mean, the way in which we eat has really evolved. And in Mexico City, and now with social media, you have access to everything immediately. So Mexico City has always... Like at that time, I think when we opened Contramare, it was sort of not up to date with what you could find in Europe or in different parts of Asia where people were eating amazingly well. In Mexico, it was more either traditional or Spanish formal. Or, but we, I think in Mexico, these past 20 years, we've really come to feel very comfortable with doing our own version with Mexican ingredients of that, for example, because tapas, Spanish tapas bar. You know, I did put Mexican things in the menu, but it, you're thinking, you're always, in Mexico, we're always thinking of things from abroad, in right. a way. So now I think it's it's come to the point where now we're making things that are just Mexican. And Contramar was that, which is interesting. Tell me about the diner. The diner. The diner was these, okay, it was a really cool bar in the 90s. When we were opening Contramar, it was, I think it opened a little bit after. It was a Cuban live music bar, very cool spot. They had... Cosmopolitans and martinis, and it was very yeah nineties. And we, and anyways, and, and eventually the the partners got into it was a complication running it, and so they didn't know what to do with it. But they had a permit to operate twenty four hours. So I thought, let's do a diner, because <laughs> I had I, I I had actually told this to a friend. I don't know in an interview or something, or we're just talking. So what 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 is Mexico City lacking? Like what is Condesa and Roma lacking? So a really good diner that is open 24 seven, 
And I was thinking of the, um, uh, the place in New York that closed. Uh, all of them? <laughs> they no, all <laughs> I know. But the really, no, but the, the really cool one, Florian, Florian. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, it, in the, like in Chelsea down there. Anyways. But, so I was thinking of that in which you had, you know, um, interesting waiters and characters and cool music and food 24 hours a day. And, and we did that. And it was a bit of, I mean, it was, it was fun, but it was a bit of a disaster because in Mexico, it doesn't work well to have kids and families arriving at 9 a.m. when there are people still drunk from the party from last night. So that was, we had to, we soon closed breakfast or like closed the late night and, and, and breakfast we only left for weekends and then we did it later to do it for brunch so that nobody could like reach it after the party. Anyways, but now we just do lunch and dinner and it's really successful and people, and again, it's, it's I do really high quality food. Uh, you know, we make our own bread. We, it's, it's, uh, pasture-raised beef and sausages that are super good quality, blah, 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 blah. But it's, and it's, and it's just a successful, a really easy place to which people, I think, go either when they're hungover or with kids. We also do catering for, like, kids' parties, and that works very well. Uh, so I've just expanded organically, but a lot. And your most recent expansion is it's into the San States. Francisco, yes. And before we talk about the restaurant, um, yes. you touched on sushi before, but you mentioned that sushi has kind of paved the way for modern Mexican cuisine. I do think. How Explain that concept. I don't it's, know. It's really interesting about mm-hmm. you know associating the high quality, paying for high quality fish and how that ties into what you're cooking. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it especially relates to Contramar. Because, yes, with... Sushi, I think people go, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think it's like the sophistication of Japan and, you know, the exoticness of eating something from so far away, but also from a place that is so, um, that has such a signature or such a brand of sort of, I think anything Japanese sounds high-end. Like, I guess the debate is that if you hear Japanese, you're willing to spend 250 on omakase. But up until, say, the early 2000s, people think Mexican food is low-cost, low-quality. If you're paying more cheap, than... It's like, cheap. Yeah, tacos, and, not more than a dollar. And Alex Dupac, who's been on the show before, has complained about how that has really hurt the image of his restaurant mm-hmm. because it's such a misconception. It's not the notion. It's not mm-hmm. even a, a notion of authenticity. It's just a misconception. Yes, totally. But the thing is that... And I do think that... But even in Mexico, I think in Mexico, traditional cooks were very conscious of how, you know, how Mexican food was extraordinary. And it's one of the, you know, more more sophisticated cuisines in the world because because of its complexity and its diversity and its very, you know, distinct ingredients. But in a general conception, Mexican food was cheap and easy and fast outside of Mexico. So I do think that even for us in in Mexico, the idea of having more exposure to different cuisines, Japanese cuisine particularly, um, I haven't really thought about this very much, but I do know that Japanese cuisine made it possible for Mexicans to feel modern in a way, and for a certain, to feel that, you know, like if you're eating raw fish, 
in that way, and wasabi, and, and ingredients which you know, and seaweed, there was a sophistication that you know it implied being worldly or more cosmopolitan or I don't know what. So, and and also the concept of sharing in small bites, I really think that influenced tasting menus, especially for example in El Bulli, you know, in the ultimate tasting menu experience that Ferran Adria created in, in his restaurant, El Bulli, which is now closed, had so much influence from Japanese cuisine and from like small bites of things and long omakase menus. I, I do think that, that contemporary cuisine has been... You, you get ambitious and you start... Like, before you had you know a first course, a second course, a third course, and then dessert maybe. And that was traditional. And, and you could... Have you could have less things that you could have? You know, was more limited to, you know, the flavors were more limited to those dishes. To have access to like 14 courses or 30 courses or 45, I was like the extreme of El Bulli, which was I think actually repulsive, mm. but interesting in terms of there are no limits to what you could have, and I do think that Japanese cuisine sort of gave that. It was an it was like going and eating tacos, but in a sophisticated way. You could have, you know, you go to a taco place and you can have tacos of everything, but it wasn't ever brought to the point of sophistication. Now we have Enrique Olvera, the like, number one most famous chef in Mexico, doing a taco tasting menu, or a, you know, a, a, a multi-course taco tasting menu, which is totally, it totally comes from omakase. That's, the, that's where the notion comes from. That's it. How did you, I mean, going up to San Francisco, you couldn't get all the local ingredients. How did you adapt some of the dishes that made its way up there? And then how did you make the restaurant food your own while still claiming the Mexican mantle? Well, it was, I always wanted, I've, I've always been much more interested in cooking things that are sustainable and make sense in the, wherever you're cooking them, than making like a traditional green mole. I, I don't, I don't care about that. Mm. I mean, I... I care about it, and when I eat it, I really appreciate it. But I don't really... I never thought I would make a restaurant that had to be Mexican in that way. So I I went there and saw the offer of incredible ingredients that there is in the Bay Area. And it's it's a dream to cook there. And I just adapt... I guess it's not even traditional Mexican food. It's food that I like, with a Mexican touch always, in terms of chiles or flavor or this really high, like really uh, pronounced balance between acidity and saltiness and spiciness and uh, fat. You know, it's like very, there's, there is, I do think there is, if there's anything that's Mexican, I mean, it's also very, it's also just about good food, but, but, but Mexican is sort of more like it, they bring it up a notch, you know, with the acidity or with the spiciness or with the, and and I do think that you know California is very Mexican, and I've, I've found so many people growing, you know, Rancho Gordo, Tierra Farms. They have amazing chiles. They grow habaneros. They grow manzanos. They grow. They have, you know, chile de árbol, chile meco, chile chipotle. Like, so all these things you can find there. So if you have incredible vegetables and just you know gay whatever. Um, you have amazing poultry, fish, uh, beef, lamb, pork, and then you add a little bit of these Mexican 
associated with Mexican food uh, spices. It's it, you 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 just make really delicious food, and it is Mexican. Of course, it's Mexican, but but not necessarily traditional Mexican. So I, I'm more interested in cooking what I can cook where I'm at. The other amazing thing about Cala is your staff. Yes. Which came from your GM, Emma. Can you talk about how the staffing uh, evolved and where it came from and the concept of how it feeds back into helping, which is probably one of the largest economic gaps in America? Yes. Okay. So when I wanted, one of my concerns was, so the food I had seen, you know, I had researched what there was around and I had seen how possible it was to make good food that, or what I consider good food there. So that was sort of, you know, checked. But then my real concern was how we were going to get a staff that would really care about serving people in the, in the very kind and helpful and humble way in which I think service should be. Because that's one of the things that I think makes your dining experience really extraordinary or not. Even if the food is great, if you're not very, very well treated and tended to with care, you know, you're it's sort of like, it's okay, but it's okay. Mm. So I, I think what makes a restaurant extraordinary is how people take care of you at the restaurant. And so I, you know, I was with Emma, we were going around thinking, where are we going to find these people? We can't just hire a bunch of illegal Mexicans. They, they're not going to want to work with us. They, they're never, they've never, you know, they don't have experience as servers. So then Emma was aware of the fact that this recidiv- you know, that recidivism levels were super high. People couldn't find jobs coming out of jail, blah, blah, blah. So it made total sense for me because here in Mexico, I've, I was used to working with people from really rough backgrounds. The restaurants are places that are very generous for people without previous training or previous... It's an economic step up. It totally is because if you're a hard worker and you're an honest worker and you're and you're and you get engaged in what you have to do, then you really can thrive. You don't need to have studied a career. You don't need to have gone to hotel school or culinary school. And and in that way, I think it's it's the perfect gateway for all these people who in the Bay Area at least and in the rest of the country actually have no access to jobs and the and the only really you know, the only jobs that they can have access to are jobs in which nobody is willing to train them and mm. nobody's willing to put in that time. So I was aware of the fact that it was an investment, but I was also aware of the fact that it was the only way of actually finding a staff that would care enough and want to be full-time server uh, or, mm. or full-time, you know, wanting to... I, I wanted people to be into the job as a, like, as a life career in a way not a life career but I, I wanted them to be committed to serving and now I have a great mix of people who are you know coming from a from a from a prison background and also people who are just so into training these people that they want to serve there for a couple of days or have part you know part-time or whatever so it's 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 been really successful final question yes the tuna tostada. Yes. A lot of the bands that we have on the show talk about when they write a hit song, they know that it's a hit song. When you made that dish, did you know it was going to be a hit dish? Yeah. yeah. What, was, what was the feeling? It was delicious. It's it's crunchy and it and it. I actually we were actually inspired by a 
Chinese, Japanese, Asian fusion place that was in, that, that existed in Mexico City in the late 90s and was and closed really soon after we opened Contramar. But they had this like wonton thing with a raw tuna tartare and like sesame oil and black sesame and wasabi and it was just our version of that in a Mexican, you know, in a in a tostada. And um and yeah, it was a great bite from the beginning. And, and, and it's just easy and delicious. And who doesn't want that? I mean, it looks like everyone does. Yes. Well, Chef, I want to thank you for giving me your time. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, where can people find you, find your restaurants, uh, get, a, get a hold of a reservation? Uh, info at contramar.com. Info at Gala SF. I think that's it. Yes. Perfect. Thank Great. you. Thank well, you so much. Yes, thank you. We're going to take another quick musical break, and we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes. What do you get when you fall? It's blood on my gun. And how can you think you're above the law? Think of my wrist, your back against the wall. Well, I left my baby in my hometown, had to drive before I drove. It's Jamison Fink, Senior Digital Editor for Wine Enthusiast Magazine. I'm enjoying some time on my stoop outside my apartment, so naturally I'm thinking about rosé. 
Uh, I've been drinking rosé since pretty much the Stone Age, and if maybe even five years ago, you'd have told me that there'd be not one, but two books about rosé, completely about rosé. I would be flabbergasted, and I would uh, be skeptical, but uh, it's 2017, and I'm holding in my hand two books about rosé. So I want to tell you about them for a little bit. Um, The first is called Drink Pink, A Celebration of Rosé by Victoria James, with illustrations by Lyle Railsback. It's a slender, charming volume with um, great illustrations, and it's a wonderful introduction to the world of rosé. I think um, if you're getting a wine book, you don't want your first wine book shouldn't be something that's like a tome that's like, you know, a thousand pages long with um, uh, you know a ton of print and it's intimidating. This is a wonderful. Uh, you can actually this book you can hold it in one hand and drink rosé out of the other hand it's perfect for that um so i highly recommend this as a wonderful introduction and um non-threatening totally welcoming way to enjoy rosé the second book is uh like you okay buckle up you're ready to get a little deeper into rosé it's a little weightier book um it's called rosé all day the essential guide to your new favorite wine by Catherine cole and this is chock full of um a lot of you know like um Victoria James's book, Great Background in History, goes in a little more in-depth and also has a lot of specific bottle recommendations that I think it's fun. Either like you pick up a rosé from the store and you're like, oh my God, it's in this book, or you read about the region, or vice versa. You read about something you like, you go to a store to find it, and then you uh, you buy it and you've got kind of this like, oh, I wrote about this in a book, and it makes you feel really good, and you can have a nice rapport with your local wine shop professional. Um, I'd also like to say about rosé a couple things. One is that, obviously, the most popular type of rosé is the rosé from Provence. It's that pale pink, you know, summer in a glass type of thing. But uh, I, and I used to be this guy where if, if a rosé wasn't pale pink, I'd be like, oh, I don't know, it's going to be heavy, it's going to be too rich. But um, just like with white wine and red wine, there's a ton of different styles of rosé, um, and it's okay to have one that's a little weightier. Um, you know, a little deeper in color. Uh, those can be wonderful too. I think Tavel um, would be the sort of the, the archetype of that. It's um, southern France. Uh, all they make is rosé, and they're you know they're darker and richer. And it's also a rosé that's nice too. Where I think we have this mania as wine professionals uh, or buyers that we're worried that someone's not going to want last year's rosé. Like, give me the freshest rosé. Bring me your freshest wines. But um, a, a wine like Tavel, you can actually drink. So now the new rosés are, are 2016 vintage, um, at least from Europe and America. And um, last year's is 2015. But I'd gladly um, drink a 2015 Tavel. And in some ways, it might be better because um, there's such a rush to get rosé, like get it in a bottle, ship it, you know. And um, like it gets to the shore, it gets in a truck, it gets to your store or your restaurant, and it's like bottle shocked. It's like, I'm tired. I need to chill out. But there's no chilling out. They open it right away. So uh, don't be afraid of rosés that are deeper-hued, and don't be afraid of rosés that uh, aren't the newest ones. They can, uh, they can, they're both delightful. I'd also like to beat the drum for sparkling rosé. It's actually my, if you ask me what my desert island wine would be, it would be rosé champagne. I think rosé champagnes are the finest in the world, but there's also a lot of great sparkling rosés that you can enjoy that aren't as expensive as champagne. Um, I wrote something for the magazine a while ago, but the picks are still valid, of course. And uh, if you just look up sparkling rosé at winemag.com, um, there's five of my picks, one champagne and four kind of fresh and fun in 20-ish dollar or less uh, sparkling wines. And then I'd also like to point out a um, kind of a, uh, a contrarian view about rosé, which might 
sound shocking. I mean, all we do is celebrate rosé, uh, and we should because it's amazing. It's a great year-round drink. I love it. It's beautiful. Um, what's not to love? It's great with food, bouillabaisse, fried chicken, whatever. It's awesome. But um, if you go to Eater or just Google rosé is exhausting, you know, look, it's a contrarian view, which is great. Uh, it's one of the best pieces about wine I've read all year. It's really uh, thought-provoking and clever and funny and uh, thoughtful. So uh, I recommend you read that, too, just to get a little, uh, you know, the flip side, the flip side of rosé. Not the dark side of rosé, but the flip side of appreciating it. So um, go out there, sit on your stoop, your porch, your patio, your rooftop, whatever, and enjoy rosé. Enjoy rosés from all over the world and uh, of all different shapes and sizes. I really think... um, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's just like white wine or red wine. There's a whole vast world of it out there. Try it from different countries, different grapes. I mean, you'll, you can spend the rest of your life and never drink all the rosés in the world. So uh, go forth and do that. And uh, I'm going to go pour myself a glass of rosé. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Uh, we are in a great mood today because we have one of our uh, favorite bands and favorite people. New but favorite bands. We were ta- we said that uh, you know we. You should yell more into the. I'm going to yell more. Uh, that you know we heard someone pass me the remix when we were coming back from Chicago and, you know then we uh, I went oh. out. Someone. Let's sue them. Yeah, <laughs> sue them. Yo, Let's I just, have this friend. His name's the Internet. Yeah, it's called the Internet. <laughs> Let's just say it got passed to me, and then uh, I hunted down Jacques, and I was like, "You're awesome." Uh, you should come on our radio show. And he was on last week? Yeah, he was on last week. And uh, he was awesome. And he's great. Jacques he, is amazing. Jacques is, he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going over to Biza to play Space. I was like, yeah, you are, dude. I was yeah. like, that's awesome. Uh, and, then, uh, and then we were like, well, you know, if we have Jacques, we, we should really actually have the people that created the song uh, oh, yeah. uh, as well, not just remixers. So uh, we would like to welcome Midnight Magic. The Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Really excited to see you guys. Do you, uh, do you guys want to go? <laughs> you guys want to go around the room, or do we need to do the names? You guys want to do, do that? Yeah. All right. Just say names and who you are, and uh, I'll turn that microphone over this way. All right. Where'd you guys start? Oh. All right. I'll start. Okay. My name's Tiffany Roth, and I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> 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 Thomas. I, I sing in the band. I'm proud of that. Okay. Uh, my name's Andrew Raposo, and uh, I'm bass player. And uh, t- typical Pisces. My name is Morgan, and I'm a lovely Libra. <laughs> uh, and I play keyboards and, and uh, mouth percussion. No, just keyboards. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's my true, though. My name is Andrew Frawley. I am a chorus. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
hit things. Uh, <laughs> you mess with the bull, you get the horns. You know what I mean? Yeah, Sanchez, I'm cancer. Play guitar, percussions, and sometimes drums. That's true. Truth. And Nick, I don't know. I'm Nick Roseboro. I'm one of many horn players. And I'm a Leo, but not your average Leo. Ooh, I think. Uh, and just and just to know uh, the uh, accompanying laughs that we have, uh, we have uh, Sarah Hooper from Jelly NYC. We'd like to give a big congratulations for the final pool party. It celebrated its five-year anniversary uh, with such acts like DMC, uh, Andrew WK, uh, Tim from the Savvy Fab, Gucci Man played last night. It was great, and we have Maggie Horn here as well, who. Remember from our telephone episode, which you can find on our podcast through iTunes. So, hey. uh, so <laughs> magic. Yeah, just yeah. give let's us a uh, let's let's get let's, let's do a dirty. song. Let's do a okay. song and then we'll do a song? Yeah, yeah, let's do a song and then we'll come back and we'll get a little history. I just want to I just want to say before we start, I want to I want to shout this out to Carter Yasutaki and Jason Disu who and Max Goldman who are not with us today, and it's probably for the best because it is super tight. It is really tight, in here. and you guys would have had to share this delicious pizza with them. I so, know, yeah. 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 all right, uh, so here we go. Uh, while I get set up, Midnight Magic, live on Snacky Tunes, Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to uh, Jack Inslee and RecTech for rocking the show and Roberta's for delicious food. Uh, are we ready to do this, guys? What's the, uh, what's the first one going to be? This is called Drop Me a Line. Drop Me a Line. You guys got it. Oh, we do? Yeah. Thank you. 
That is Midnight Magic live on Snacky Tunes. Uh, thank you. Amazing. Uh, so why don't you come sit down on next to us and... Uh, that, that sounds t- better when it's fueled by pizza, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> pizza, the energy food. Uh, so why don't you give our listeners uh, a little background on Midnight Magic? Tiffy? Andrew? Tiffy? Andrew? Tiffy? Andrew? Rock, Seriously, paper, scissors? Uh, I was born in Boston, uh, March 5th, 1980. My mom actually was... Oh, no, I'm sorry, about Midnight Magic. My bad. Okay, sorry. Um, Morgan and Tiffany were working on, like, four-track recordings and all this stuff about 13 years ago in L.A., and I was living out there, actually crashing on Morgan's floor, and uh, they did not really invite me to make music with them, but I was a fan. <laughs> and then I went back to the East Coast, and I was in this band called Automato with the guys from Holy Ghost. And we made a record, uh, and Morgan came out and joined that band. And when that band broke up, in uh, that was all like in 2002, and then record came out in 03, 04, whatever it was. That band was done, broken up by 2005. <laughs> and... Uh, I wasn't playing or doing anything, and then Morgan called me and said, you know, Tiffany moved here, and we're working on stuff again. This guy Carter from the new school, and this guy Max, and this guy Evan Herring, and I came and we jammed, and we, the four of us, five of us, six of us, we talked about, like, well, let's, let's do something with this. And uh, we were working on all this great music, and it was going really well, and then, and then uh, uh, Morgan and I got conscripted into uh, Hercules and Love Affair, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, basically just helped Andy put the live band together and we pulled a lot of people out of Midnight Magic in order to do that. <laughs> so um, Tiffany was like, oh man, really? Oh man? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she is not <laughs> smiling. Yeah. <laughs> All you radio listeners. <laughs> and then at the end, and then at the end of uh, the album cycle for the first record, Andy wanted to go off do his thing, we want to go off do our thing and we uh, got working on our first release uh, actually finishing it, getting the Jacques remix, getting Gavin's remix, getting Goldsworthy, who I call the J.D. Salinger of dance music, <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to uh, do a remix. And Permanent, um, I don't know, they kind of came out of nowhere, and they're like, let's do this. And we're like, okay. So uh, we added Andrew to the band last year and Kaito to the band last year. Uh, Nick and Carter are like best friends from Seattle, so it kind of made sense for Nick to be in the band and... I don't know. We're going to have hopefully 15, 16, 17 members by next year. So really just yeah. making a really easy touring yeah. band. Yeah. Um, I mean, really exciting, you know, like uh, for anybody who's listening to the show, you know, we saw you guys at that tandem, the PS1 after party. Uh, Sarah was there and uh, uh, Darren and a bunch of us. And normally one of us was, you know, we'll go out and we'll see them. Like, that was, that was awesome. And I'll be like, you were high. It's like, yeah, but that was still really <laughs> awesome. Uh, this time we were all high and we all really liked it. So uh, it was like great to see. And it's great to see bands like that, you know, playing in tandem, in, like a yeah. back corner. Yeah. That place is awesome. And that I place is awesome. It's really small. And I think one of the uh, best parts is I didn't see the horn players in there. And then because you guys didn't have horns in the first song. And the second song, the horns came in. I was like, that's one of the best sampled horns. What is that coming out of the keyboard? And then I just like shifted over behind my person. I was like, oh, there's two horn players in the corner. But uh, it's, um, you guys do that great thing where you sort of um, mix your whole set live. Yeah. And, uh, and so you guys, like, how long did it take for you to sort of put the live show together um, once you guys got back together after, you know, post-Hercules? Uh, I don't know. I mean, we started practicing and really trying to just make the band a tighter, tougher band. Um, you know, kind of honor a little bit more the spirit of the way the things were recorded, which we didn't really do yet, <laughs> uh, or haven't really done yet. But I, th- I don't know. We started doing like the one continuous set thing, like 
I think it was like we just wanted to. Only, only like maybe six months ago. Yeah, only six months right? ago. Yeah, something like that. I'm looking at Morgan. He's just not going to say anything. <laughs> he's just. I, I'm just I looking. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a. Uh, oh, there's a man at the window. Yeah, it's uh, very scary uh, man. He's uh, thinking that our friends what's going dined on in. Here? He thought that our friends dined in Dash, and they're just they snuck in here to uh, oh, really? do it. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, the the live show is a, a work in progress, but we're we're finally there yet. I think ready to do tours and stuff like that. So uh, excited, and we're uh, you know well, the reason why we're having you on is we can talk about this after the break. Is that we're having punches is going to be playing with you guys tomorrow night oh yeah at union hall which is a free show which but you know let's let's play another song we talk about the show tomorrow sure and uh yeah what's and i like it to be known that we only play in really small spaces <laughs> right like this space the, and the union, union hall, hall. um yeah. so uh what song is next same way i feel same way it's same slower. it's a little slower oh dear, oh, dear. you're listening to the quiet storm oh, between uh, the sheets with Midnight Magic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this is Snacky Tunes. Uh, we got Midnight Magic coming up for the second of three songs. And uh, I don't know. Grab the one you love. Hold them tight. You are terrible at this. You're saying a year you've been doing this? Terribly awesome. Terribly awesome. Um, we're uh, Once again, uh, Midnight Magic.
jam. Slow jam for the Mondays, huh? Yeah. Uh, you are listening to Snacky Tunes. That is Midnight Magic live. Uh, you can say wherever you can say wherever you like. Oh, have a so uh, let's talk about a little bit about the name Midnight Magic. Where does it come from? What to represent? Please explain this because you, my friend, yeah, we, we, we had come up with so many different names, and they were all so stupid. Can you and give us an example of when, what, what didn't work? Like Midnight in the Stars, okay. which I actually still kind of like. We came up with Deep Out, which I was like, yeah, man, it's totally like psych. Okay. That didn't okay. work. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about that one. No, pee pipe. pipe was not even, that was just a joke. Pink dolphin. That's not real. Well, now it's on the radio, so uh, I don't know. It's, we just made it. But we were Fidelia. We were another, we were, which is the password that Tom Cruise says in Eyes Wide Shut. And he, but he says it in this way. It's his delivery. He goes, Fidelia. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. It's amazing. Anyway, uh. so these guys came up with Midnight Magic, and I was like, no, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. It sounds like a batch of acid that you get. Go on. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. I'm with I was you. Like, no fucking way are we going to be called Midnight Magic. It's a joke. And then for like the first year of us performing live, I'd be like, we're Midnight Magic. <laughs> but now I'm kind of into it. Yeah, so you, you can't make that joke. It's just going to stick. You're like, all right, well, we used to be, and then you have to be formally Midnight Magic. Yeah. For whatever name is so. Right, I'm proud yeah. of it now. I really it's like a great it. name. Thank you. And it's Googleable, which we have, <laughs> yeah. which we have actually talked about on this show. Uh, we call ourselves Punches. Just try Googling Punches. Never gonna find us. Never gonna find us. A lot of hockey fights. Yeah, so a lot of hockey, that, lot of hockey fights. So uh, we got a show with you guys tomorrow. Yes. Uh, which we're pretty excited about. So are we. Um, and what else do you guys have for live tours, album releases, websites, uh, things I like that? Because yep. <laughs> uh, I, I have a BlackBerry, so I, I get all those emails. Really <laughs> um, uh, we are going to do um, a bunch of stuff in New York coming up. Um, uh, in October 15th, we're doing this huge party in Williamsburg with Shock, which is going to be super fun. And then we're going out to the West Coast, hopefully in October or early November, to do a Ronda party. Oh, uh, yeah. amazing. <laughs> I've been. It's those, those the best. Great. And yeah. then a, a great, there's a great DJ, like luminary guy in LA named Ashlyn Mines, who's also going to feature us at this crazy after hour spot that he has now, uh, which I can't mention on the radio because it'll kill me probably. Highland Ballroom. It's, and then, oh yeah, Highland Ballroom. Thank you. Right, Highline Bar, oh, right. 23rd, open awesome. for Escort. Yeah. We're going to blow that disco band out the water. No, I'm and, kidding, I love those guys. And then I think uh, we actually have to play our EP release on the 12th of October. Ooh, that's another plug. We'll have to talk to Nick about... Uh, Cross promotion, yeah. Yes. Why not? And hopefully, he doesn't get too upset. No, I'm just I'm excited to see yeah. Escort really because you know we're kind of like this live big band, dance band, and they have a lot of members too. And it'd yeah, be like they, a good basketball tournament. They'd be good. They haven't. <laughs> they've been sort of off the radar recently. Are they right? When's the last time they played? Uh, I I don't I don't know, but I know someone who saw them recently and said oh, they were really good. Oh yeah, yeah. so that's gonna be a good show. And those tickets are on sale now, right? I believe so. Oh man, it's gonna be awesome. Awesome. Uh, so also, just for final details, uh, you can find the free RCP for tomorrow night's show if you just go to Punches BK on Twitter, and it's free. Just get there early because Union Hall is Union Hall like double the size of this. So wait a second. Uh, in a Punches versus Midnight Madness, Bocce tournament, who's winning? Um, Bocce. Probably you guys. I don't even know. Well, well, I don't know how to play Bocce. I don't either. 
You have the bodies for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I Real have been uh, told that I'm a very strong Italian uh, physique mm-hmm. um, with great bocce oh, arms. Well, like, you know what? I've got some WAP in me. As well. Oh. So, well, I mean, we're just going to have to Well, see. I might have to WAP you on the court then. Oh. oh. And, and with that, uh, thank you for listening to Snacky Tunes. We're your host, Finger on the Pulse. We will be off next week uh, for the long weekend. Hopefully, we'll see no, you. We're getting out of here early today. I'm yeah, we're getting early. I'm today. getting on the road for the beach. So enjoy this short but packed show. Thank you to Anna Constance from La Fooding. Fairway, fantastic fare for low, low prices. Always delicious, always fresh. Thank you to Roberta's Jack and Z Rec Tech. Yeah, we wait, got one more talk about oh. Yeah, we got one. This is, this is our like closeout <laughs> banter. The, you cannot tell professionals this. This is the like, uh, Andrew's like, but you said we could have three. We're, uh, we're but, so good no, at closing no one, out the no show. You thought wants, we were closing out No one ever out wants now? to hear the you guys scene. Are good. No one ever. He thought we were leaving. That's how good we are. He's like, but we tried this on here. And a big shout out to uh, Maggie Horn, to Telephone, Sarah Hooper of Jelly NYC. Congratulations again on a great five years. And uh, you give me my medallion back. That's my ice cream card. Yeah, that's my ice cream uh, So we're going to hear Beam Me Up, which we've been playing the remix of a, a million times and never played the original in here. So this will be like the original debut. Uh, oh, you're you're real good at radio. I'm great at radio. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. And, and once again, oh, yeah. thank you guys for having Midnight uh, Magic NPR. If you're listening, yeah, we are yeah. available <laughs> for all birthday parties, car washes, <laughs> yeah, and uh, tenth and fifteenth year anniversaries. Yeah. Uh, one uh, one more time, Midnight Magic.
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.